and welcome to Contourcast. My name is Kat Boyd and I'm joined with my lovely co-host David Jameson. How's it going everyone? <laughs> I don't know why I'm asking everyone, they can't respond. <laughs> That's one of the glories. Today. That's one of, one of the glories of this medium. What, then no one can like heckle you? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember that before um, coronavirus happened, we toyed with the idea of doing a live show? Mm-hmm. like in front of an audience i think we should still do that now that obviously um lockdown's beginning to ease slowly we, um, early, right we we did that once um part of yeah what was that again it was, that the, it was the launch of the contour magazine no 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 i'm thinking about um at that festival oh god the festival yeah david the the genesis of Connor Cast is from doing the Rabbit Hole Festival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, a- the genesis of the idea of Connor Cast came from our appearance at the Spiegel tent or something akin to that at doing the Rabbit Festival. And it was a very strange day, all in all. Yeah, yeah. So it's out. It's, it, it takes place just outside Stirling. I mean, imagine it's not happening this year because uh, of the pandemic. But um, and it's organised seven degrees of separation, or is this just Scotland being a small country? It's organised by uh, what's his name? Who's uh, has what's his name? He has that blog. Um, I've, I'm genuinely just have lockdown brain. Um, you you're, you're genuinely have some of the worst name recall of anyone I've ever met. This is a a, a, a segue, but uh, do you know that's genetic? Like that's, that runs in my family, that thing. So oh. my, my, my dad, it's on my dad's side. My dad used to call me after my cat's names and all sorts. Mm. Um, I, what was your cat called, David? I had a cat called Fatness. <laughs> So maybe he was just insulting me. No, he, he actually used to uh, he used to call me the names of long dead cats. Like we had a cat called Fred and another cat called Muriel. And I remember getting called. He called you, your daddy called you Muriel. Yeah. <laughs> Someone called Dr. Freud. A child called it, a child called Muriel. Child called Fatness. Child called um, Fatness, I like the best. Well, for God's sake, what's his name? He was the uh, former ambassador who got... Craig Murray. Craig Murray, right? So he and his and, family... Can I just point out that when you say, oh, it's thing me with a blog, that really <laughs> you're not, like, you're rattling that down any... A Scottish man with a blog uh, runs that, yeah. Um, so it's his, it's his deal, but... It's got it's got a very kind of, sort of happy alternative sort of feel to it. We saw some shocking sights uh, of people dressed up as bumblebees and so like on. We saw some of the worst of Extinction Rebellion live. Mm-hmm. I, I vividly remember someone dressed as a frog, a man dressed as a bee with some maracas, and the slow procession of people saying this is an emergency with that big banner saying this is an emergency yeah wandering around in this in this uh, sort of festival with you know bands playing on the stages and so on so uh yeah though do you know there's really sad thing is right i don't want to mock it too much because it's like scotland's cultural and civic sphere is small enough right but um 
that is one of the only music festivals I've ever been to. I never went to Tea in the Park. I never went to any of the big, you know, um, uh, music festivals. So that's that's my youth. That's my the Halcyon days. <laughs> uh, um, but I we did a thing there about all the mad shit we're always talking about on on here. Yeah, it was so definitely was a- like there was a lot of God chat. There was a lot of anti-capitalism. Yeah. 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 I do remember it being quite surreal. I think, did I not do something stupid like neck a whole can of Monster about 20 minutes before we were due to go on and felt really sick? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Definitely, there was some. There was an incident with an energy drink that really tipped me over the edge. Uh-huh, yeah. No, it was, uh, it was uh, quite an unwell experience. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was also like, it was just like, it's pissing it down with rain uh, and all this kind of stuff uh, so but you know it was a good laugh it was a good laugh yeah. and here we are we've been doing corner cast for quite some time now huh yeah yeah um are we into our second year i can't yeah I can't. yeah we must i think we started in august 19 mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so there you go uh that's how it all all began I can't remember how we started going down this this memory show. Because uh, you were just saying that you enjoy the fact that people can't heckle you because it's a podcast. Yeah, though, like, I, I don't know about you, but like, I got, I woke up this morning and just started reading um, the, the Scottish politics news that we'll get on to. And I did think, I was sitting there in bed, reading my phone, thinking, how has my life come to this? I just get up, I wake up, and the first thing I do is, because my alarm's on my phone, I go straight from that to looking at the tube. Do you know what I mean? And I look down the tube into this kaleidoscope of slowly twisting, freakish Scottish politics developments, getting more and more angry until that elicits my first tweet of the day, denouncing <laughs> things, right? Um, but... I know this isn't this isn't a, a unique uh, uh, you know insight, but it is it when you really sit sit down and think about it, it really is incredible. Under lockdown, the extent to which we have almost no social relationships anymore that aren't commercial, that aren't digital or electronic, uh, it's a totally freakish uh, and unnatural way of living because you know even if you're only paying a little bit for your internet or whatever that's it that that those are the only sort of social relationships I have and I've started doing this thing as well and I told myself at the start of the pandemic I wasn't going to do this of just buying shit into the flat Amazon why I don't even know why I'm uh buying shit half the time uh do you know what I mean so I'm now part of this redivision of society into uh people who work from home and then a, a second larger tier of people, many of whom are dashing around to people's houses, dropping off goods. Do you know what I mean? And it's just, I'm just yeah. cycling between that and, and uh, getting angry about Scottish politics. Which I'm about to do again. The, the ordering things offline, like has really, I don't, it's really lost its novelty for me. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I, I'm just really desperate to like go out and like get a coffee and sit in somewhere that's not my house 
Like, I'm honestly so sick of rattling about my own house and talking to the cat all the time or talking to myself all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the really frightening thing is when you realise that this model is being locked in. There's a really fascinating thing going on at the moment, which is lots of town centres around Britain are talking about these big new garden developments that they're going to have. Um, and I, I went to my hometown once and I spoke to some of the councillors about why they're doing this in air, where they're building two parks at either end of the high street. And the, the, one of the councillors just told me it's to reduce the number of units on the high street. Mm. And it's just a cheap way of doing that. I mean, it's just a park. It doesn't really cost anything. And you can use that to sort of flatten parts of the high street, reduce the number of units, and they'll turn into more kind of upmarket or boutique shops. Or do you know what I mean? Like hipster type things. Do you know what I mean? And cafes and restaurants. Artisan is the word you're looking Artisan. for. Uh, and that and the, the, the high street, the remaining high streets will mostly become a place for middle class people to pay for expensive things that you don't buy online. And uh, the rest of us will just be expected to buy, uh, you know, off of Amazon, basically. It's a really a sort of instructive view of how, um, how capitalism and, and public policy are in this kind of dialectical relationship where changes in capitalism, the rise of kind of Amazon warehouse type retail, destroyed high streets. And in response, uh, local councils get rid of the high streets, thus locking in the monopoly, making it impossible for anyone to challenge it. I mean, I can see that happening at the level of like the like a town centre or something like I'm picturing Hamilton, like where I grew up. So I'm, I'm picturing that in my head or somewhere like Coke Bridge, which doesn't really have a town centre anymore anyway. Like if it wasn't for the ASDA, there really wouldn't be much there. Um, but when you actually think of that on like a city scale, or like somewhere like Glasgow, so Glasgow's whole future plan was hinged on expanding the retail brand to make Glasgow like somewhere that people come from all over parts of the UK to do shopping. Mm -hmm. And you think about like all of the development that's gone into Buchanan Street, the um, new Queen Street station, all of these um, additions to the city centre, the repedestrianisation of Norwich City, not Norwich City Centre, Sucky Hall Street, <laughs> went partridge there. Partridge. Um, so, yeah, there's this like huge, been this huge push for like Glasgow to like expand on its like retail, you know, economy, if you like. Um, previously, a lot of the criticisms around that had been like retail is not like, it's not high paying, high skill job creation. It's very transient, it's precarious, it's often low paid, it's predominantly young people. So it's never really been a sustainable model. However, now with the pandemic, it's it's even less sustainable. And the I remember a few years ago there was a documentary. I think it was in Channel Four, and it was about a kind of it was an apocalyptic sort of thing about what happens to cities when all of the humans leave. And it showed mm -hmm. like digitized footage. Um, of, I don't know what the technical name for that is of how quickly the landmarks that we know in the modern age disintegrate. 
and you can kind of you get that sense certainly like even just in a few months of the shops being closed over the winter period as you walk down Sucky Hall Street and through the town centre as I did yesterday like you get this sense of like things are you know when the the lights aren't on when humans aren't there and actually um you know participating in the high the high street or the city centre then things start to look really like dilapidated really quickly yeah and I really worry like what what is the post retail future of Glasgow going to look like because I I mean because obviously before retail it was arts and culture mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean to like it was all about revamping the city's image blah 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 so what what next like and i think that there, there has to be i really hope someone's got some ideas um yeah yeah no uh, uh, i i do think i mean i i don't think we're going to have a, a sense of just how badly hit um even you know somewhere like glasgow is going to be uh, after we reemerge by which point amazon will have just risen to this unheard of retail monopoly monopolies of traditionally dominated modern retail. If you look at something like Asda, which is, um, I think I'm right in still saying it's still part of the Walmart group. Mm-hmm. Everyone has known for a long time and they're all, all always getting into trouble for for um, price fixing and all this kind of stuff. Um, but there's never been anything like Amazon and yeah. the uh, its capacity to destroy its competitors with its new model is just unrivaled. Uh, and there seems very little political will to control it. Uh, obviously, because um, it's such a huge part of the uh, economy. Anyhow, so uh, obviously the big news today Talking that we're seeing decay, rot, yeah. disaster. Yes, uh, do you know? But I was I was thinking about this this morning. So see, when I went on Twitter, right in in bed, right before I've done anything, right. Um, it was the, I was I was alerted to what was going on by a small number of journalists that I follow on Twitter, people like Severin Carroll, uh, Tom Gordon, uh, and so on. And uh, but were it not for them, and you know, you read below their tweets, and it's like it's it's chaos. Like, do you know how I many people are saying that this is the most insane thing ever? And the rest of my Twitter landscape, probably because of how it's been curated since I set up my account back in 2013 or whatever, um, was just kind of silent for the most part. <laughs> it was just, it, you really see on, on you know, on, on a big news day, uh, you see those bubbles and like how they work and how they manage people's perception of the significance of a story mm-hmm. and, and whatever. Mm-hmm. So obviously, uh the crown office has uh you know this morning told the scottish parliament um that uh, uh the alex salmon's unredacted uh, submission to the inquiry couldn't shouldn't be uh published it was published of course but sh- should be unpublished and redacted by the scottish parliament um because it threatened the anonymity of the complainants yeah, so since we last talked about this, right, that was two weeks ago. Um, so since then, I'm trying to I'm trying to map out a timeline because I think that so like we said on the last pod, like things change so rapidly all the time in this 
like very chaotic um, picture that it's really easy to lose track. So my timeline, and tell me if, I, if I've missed anything. So after the Lady Dorian judgment, the inquiry examined Salmon's evidence and then voted five to four against publishing, but mm-hmm. also voted in favor about six to three of referring the evidence to the corporate body of the Scottish Parliament. Hmm. Yeah? Yes. We're okay so far. So then the corporate body looks at the document and they said it's publishable. Then there there was a bit of confusion around whether it was or wasn't going to be published or they were just saying it was publishable. There was a lot of like stuff on Twitter around that, but eventually it then was published. And that cleared the way for Alex Salmon to appear in front of the committee. Yeah. Right so far? Yes. Then it all, like, a huge bun fight kicks off about whether it's a conspiracy, the definition of conspiracy, da 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 and it's all, um, you know, about that, that term. Then the next thing that I remember is that you get the rumour mill... Well, I say the rumor mill, I mean the, the press. <laughs> um, publish, <laughs> publish, I mean, spot, spot the difference, right? Um, start publishing stories that um, are kind of like, it's like a Tory comment on um, the, the idea that the buck lands with Nicola Sturgeon or it, like it stops with Nicola Sturgeon because there had been actual rumors that Nicola Sturgeon planned to throw... Um, Leslie Evans, Liz Lloyd, and her husband, Peter Murrell, under the bus for what had happened. Then there was another big kind of explosion in the last few days of people saying, we have real concerns about this evidence being published. And there was people tweeting about it and saying um, some, I think, party staffers tweeting about that they thought it would make it harder for women to come forward if this was published. I mean, I think the, the whole shambles is going to, it is potentially going to make it harder for women to come forward. I think that's mm-hmm. the real tragedy of this whole thing. Um, and then finally, the Crown Office made their intervention and the evidence was removed from the Parliament website and redacted and then republished. Is that, is that we up to speed? Yes. Um, so, oh, yeah. Really? So that, that is the long kind of, uh, twist and tangle of it again. So I now see that Alex Salmond has said uh, he won't appear tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That would be Wednesday uh, in the, uh, before the uh, uh, committee. So we're back to that. Um, he has offered to come in on Friday, but the parliament is closed on Friday. So who knows why he made that suggestion. Um, so the, what I basically think about this whole thing at this point is, first of all, like... Scottish democracy could not look stupider like at this point. This is this is probably the worst crisis uh, of um, the Scottish Parliament since its opening in 1999. Uh, it's clear that things are badly wrong. Um, the relationships between the various institutions uh, seem suspect, to be honest. Like, uh, I don't know how anyone could look at this and think, you know, you can't just say everything's incompetent forever. 
if it is, if, it, if there's this much widespread incompetence, incompetence in, the, in the Scottish bit of the British state, then something very strange has happened. But, um, yeah, there's, and I think everyone has a strong sense of we're not seeing the whole picture here uh, in terms of what's going on. I mean, that there is a significant struggle for influence and power in the major legal and political institutions uh, in the state and in the media uh, and so on. Um, I kind of feel at this point that we're, the report that this committee eventually produces, if it does produce it because we're running out of time mm -hmm. like very quickly, that the report will satisfy no one and prove nothing. I mean, that, that is, that's the general image I have of this situation. It's hard to imagine it coming to any kind of conclusion. I think some people are watching this as though it's like a football match and Isla Sturgeon or Salmond may win or lose. Uh, I doubt it very much. I, I mean, both, both are losing. Both are losing. It's just an open sewer. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people... A lot, a lot of people, particularly in kind of like middle-class society in Scotland, they've long had this thing of like, well, you know, um, the Scottish Parliament's so much better than Westminster. Mm, is it? Um, it's full of lobbyists. It's uh, opaque, extremely opaque. It's very hard to find out information about this. And I mean, in many ways, people are just seeing what journalists have been seeing around the Scottish government and so on for years and years and years, which is you can't get a straight answer on anything. Uh, there's a real, really powerful culture of secrecy at the top of Scottish politics. Um, it's absurdly centralized around the person of Nicholas Sturgeon. Uh, messaging is intensively you know, controlled. Um, spads are all over the, the, the sort of comms work of, uh, of the Scottish government and so on. So I think um, that's possibly one of the more damning parts of the evidence is about the, the leak to the press mm -hmm. of the, the allegations. Um, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine how horrific that must have been for uh, the women who'd come forward yeah. to be confronted with this, I mean, global news story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, they're, they're, those women are kind of being used as a battering ram here, there and everywhere, right? And all kinds of things are being said about them that nobody has any grounds to say uh, in terms of, you know, who they are or what they've done or what, or, you know, all this kind of like speculation. The sad thing about today is it will put that kind of speculation on steroids, obviously, like it's just going to explode now. Um, but and, uh, again, almost no one in this situation doesn't look like they haven't let down those complainers, but also just women who would be in a position to make complaints of that kind in any major public institution in the country. Yeah. Scotland's probably one of the countries in the Western world that has responded to, to the Me Too um, uh, movement the most like poorly, basically. Uh, like, <clears throat> who, who would speak out <laughs> if, if this was the circus uh, that you would, uh, you would likely greet? So widespread institutional failure. The major inst institutions of Scottish public life are just hemorrhaging respectability and legitimacy. Um, and, it, and that has major implications for the future of the evolution. I mean, what would you say to the many, many people 
who really don't give a shit. And I think there's quite a lot of them. Mm -hmm. I think that in a way, the fact that there is such a pressing matter of the pandemic and the vaccine rollout, the attention has, has been like off the committee um, and I mean, yes, the, the, there is coverage of the mainstream news that is on Twitter, but I do wonder, like, I spoke to someone earlier on today and I was like, oh, did you see the news? Like, what did you think of that? Like, trying to get a temperature check for someone who is not, like, like involved in any type of, like, politics or, or even really on Twitter. And they said, oh, I, um, I care about it uh, marginally more than I would care about the royal family as celebrity news, which is like that. I mean, you can't really get any more disinterested than that. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is a degree of like, I think people have deprioritized this entirely. Yeah, I think so. I think think that's a reflection on how unseemly it is as well. Mm -hmm. I think people just, it's almost, and that, you know, you always get people who say, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. And, you know, anything that's kind of gross and kind of... Um, uh, Delicious. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it's, you know, it's a classic story in a way of, like, the mentor and the apprentice and, you know, oh, but now she's, you know, against them. And, you know, it, it is an explosion in the kind of atomic core of, of Scottish politics. But at the same time, uh, yeah, I, I think that obviously it's taking place in the back, it, it, with the backdrop that it does. However, the, my feeling about this is that we're at the start, <laughs> Christ, we're at the start of a story that's going to take a long time to emerge. Like, this isn't the end. No, like, no, is, no, 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 the rumours in Scottish politics have always been that Nicola Sturgeon is going to go sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I think that that will be sooner. I can't see it being like long into the next term of government, but we'll wait and see. Yeah, and ov- obviously, you know, what, what, what looms in the background for most of the people who are following this is uh, that's, this is just another reason why the Scottish independence movement is why there's not going to be independence in the, in the, in the short term, why, why it's now a kind of long-term thing. Not that anyone can admit that, you know, in the, in, in the public sphere. I'm not making a prediction when I say this. I'm just saying this is how I can imagine the future. Like, let's say Nicola Sturgeon is gone as First Minister within, you know, the next couple of years. And she's off working at the UN or something, right? They'll be still flying out to interview her about this then. This is what I think people don't understand. I think they think it's gonna there's gonna be a report um, <clears throat> in, in a few weeks' time, and that's the grand finale to this whole thing. Uh, and that report speculating about it, but people will try and use that to say this issue is now concluded, let's go on with the election, let's get back to normal politics and all that kind of stuff. But it 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 no matter what that report says, what's what's come out during this whole affair means that Nicola Sturgeon is unlikely to have a view that she's going to be sitting for mo- as First Minister for most of the next term of the Scottish mm. Parliament. Mm. Um, and we'll probably seek a fairly rapid acceleration of trying to find uh, a replacement for her, which is a big moment in the, in the history of the SNP as well, because... Um, Alex Salmond is the architect of the modern SNP 
And Nicholas Sturgeon was, you know, as people keep saying in, in the UK government, because they want to basically, you know, remind everyone of this constantly. She was his apprentice. Nicholas Sturgeon doesn't have an apprentice. Nicholas Sturgeon doesn't have, you know, it's that classic epigony effect. Like she's she's not going to hand on the baton to any up and coming figure because there isn't one. My money's on Kate Forbes. Not Angus Robertson. Mm, I mean, maybe I want it to be Kate Forbes. Uh, that would be that would be interesting because, of course, I she think is I, she's a member of the Wee Freeze. She's a Wee Free. So, uh, Scott, I should be supporting this. Scotland will return to the cup. That's what I was thinking. It's perfect for you, dude. Yeah, I'll I'll overnight just become the biggest hack. You know what I mean for uh, for the Scottish government. <laughs> <laughs> the worst apologist imaginable. Um, a, a, a true, uh, a true Calvinist has returned to office. Uh, so yeah, uh, that is that grim state of affairs. So speaking of grim states of affairs, <laughs> um, lockdown. Yeah. There's so no light at the end of the tunnel. There, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's which no light mean, at the end of the tunnel. Which means uh, that it's really important that we are reminded ceaselessly by politicians that it's okay to not be okay, or various mangled versions of that phrase. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay to be not okay, uh, and so on. Which Is it okay to be okay? Is it okay to be okay? It's okay to be okay. Is it? Is it? Uh, no, that's selfish if you're okay. Yeah, you know, that means that you're not suffering with the rest of us. I mean, what even is okay? Like, what what sort of bar are we talking here? <laughs> yeah, I know. I honestly don't know where my okay bar is. Yeah, I don't I don't think I ever feel okay. I don't think I don't ever... I never, when, honestly, in your whole life, wait, no, wait, your whole adult life, when have you ever felt okay? Never. Yeah, you, you're either, you're either, you're... You, you're either going flying upwards on the roller coaster or kind of, you know, down. Yeah. You're but, either like on the on the manic upswing, feeling all powerful, omnipotent and godlike, or yeah. you're feeling like the smallest of amoeba crawling through a sewer. What I mean, nobody knows what okay is. No. Nah. confusing. And I don't think anyone exists, you know, as, as a kind of uh, stable emotional... Uh, Balanced, they call them, those types yeah. of people. Balanced I people. I don't, I don't trust that. I don't think that's real. <laughs> I, don't, uh, I think, I, I think on it, being okay is probably um, very rare. It's a sign of psychopathy. But that's what Hamza Yusuf wants from you. Justice Minister, um, when he was announcing, or, you know, following Nicola Sturgeon's announcements that... that basically what is the Scottish government's announcement basically we're not going to say anything's basically going to change until the data confirms blah 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 which basically we're, we're in this indefinitely is, is what I'm reading from that um so there is good news on the vaccine front and so on and so forth. but anyway I uh, do feel like things are going to get better like people are being vaccinated exactly. um that must make a difference do you know what I mean like it's I saw that the sort of second phase of easing starts on my birthday, which is the 15th of March. And um, if anyone wants to send birthday congratulations, I'm in my, I will go into my late thirties on the 15th of March officially. Nice. Um, 
and four people from two households can meet outdoors and that would honestly just be the best birthday present ever yeah and <clears throat> they're saying i mean who knows but they're saying that all adults in the uk will be vaccinated or have their first vaccination jab by the end of july so that's that's something um but anyway hamza yusuf says uh, that it's okay to not be okay or it's okay not to be okay or something like that and i've seen a few politicians saying that today what's that supposed to do for me what 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 do you think i've been given by doing that i really resent people who are in a position of public policy um sort of saying look i know i've not given you anything but it's okay to feel bad about it, it that's almost what this feels like do you know what i mean it's okay for you to feel unhappy about the fact that i mean yeah that's that's exactly it it's like it's all right to feel like shite because everything is shite and we are not going to do anything to fix it yeah so that's okay I just, I, I just ima imagine using that in day-to-day -day life. Imagine a man who's like cheated on his wife and says to her, look, the, the reality is I cheated on you, right? Uh, with your best pal. It's okay for you to not feel okay about that. I just want you to know that it's okay for you to feel really upset about this. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a healthy, normal thing. This started as like HR speak, directed, I think, principally at men. You know, this kind of thing about men, you know, talk about your feelings and so on. Yeah. It's just interesting that it's now migrated to people who are supposed to be your elected representative telling you that it's okay for you to feel disappointed in them. <laughs> be honest about your feelings about how I've disappointed you and let you down and how you feel remote from me and feel that, you know, I don't actually serve the community who elected me. It's okay for you to feel like that, you know. <clears throat> don't don't keep it all inside because that will be harmful for your mental health. Um, just adds to this general feeling in modern politics of being managed all the time. Yeah, uh, like being emotionally managed and manipulated. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's what I feel all the time. Um, I was thinking a lot about this in relation to, I did that thing that people like nads sometimes do where I listen to one of those debates between Michael Foote and Enoch Powell. Um, <clears throat> and I'm not someone who gets uh, sort of gooey about uh, Michael Foote and Enoch Powell, you know, they, they once represented supposedly a much higher level of British politics where you had these public intellectuals who were also politicians. People sometimes talk about it like it was fucking Athenian democracy or something, right? Uh, and they were also pals, which to me just is a bit, you know what I mean? I don't, you know, why can't, why can't people on the kind of uh, the left and the right be friends, all this kind of stuff. But anyway, uh, they were debating, and at one point, Enoch Powell like obviously came around to immigration, and Enoch Powell said, because they'd both been talking about their opposition to the EEC and saying that it would threaten uh, democratic life in Britain and so on, it would hollow out democratic institutions in Britain, and they were both right about that. Um, but Enoch Powell challenged um, Foot on the democratic credentials of his support for immigration. And um, you know, Powell said, I wonder how your constituents feel about, or whether you feel that you're representing your constituents. How do they feel about immigration? You know, the immigration will, they agree with me on immigration. And Michael Foote said, I don't care because that's not what politics is about. Politics is not about me simply representing people in my constituency. It's also about my conscience. And sometimes that has to be the guiding force in, in my politics. 
which struck me as, you know, it wasn't saying things like that that destroyed faith in politics, right? It wasn't people saying, it's all very well that my constituents disagree with me on this policy issue, but I disagree with them and ultimately it's my say, right? That kind of like official, very public, small a authoritarianism of ultimately my moral preoccupations trump what my electors think. Um, that's not what make, drives people crazy about politics. What drives people crazy about politics is today a Labour MP is in a constituency and if he gets the sense, right or wrongly, that his constituents are against immigration or you know the movement into that constituency of a certain community or whatever, he tells them whatever they want to hear and he tries to manage them. He tries to manage their emotions. And he say, he'd probably say things like, um, it's okay for you to feel that way. I understand what you think on this question. It's obviously a false dialogue. You know, it's obviously- it Of course it is, because they just spent like, what, four years after the EU referendum telling everyone that voted to leave that they were an idiot. <laughs> like when it really comes to the crunch, do you know yeah. what I mean? Like politicians aren't prepared to listen when it's a like majoritarian view is expressed and like actually try and take that forward. Do you know what I mean? They're trying to manage it saying, oh, well, you know, we're lied to, you know, it wasn't right, what happened? It was all dodgy, maybe a bit of Russian money. Not really sure about that. You need to vote again. Do you know what I mean? Like that that's basically the the rhetoric of the whole people's vote campaign. Yeah. And and, and of course the people who led the people's vote campaign were also the sorts of people who, uh, well, they're literally the faction of the Labour Party who came up with the phrase British jobs for British workers, right? And there's a relationship between these two things. There's a relationship between your willingness to engage even in sort of demagogic slogans around issues like uh, immigration and your utter determination to defend the European Union as an institution out of the view that it represents the center of one of the centers of power and uh, you know in the modern state system and so on um paul mason said as said as much and keeps saying it. he keeps saying uh the reason why people on the left of the labor party were willing to accept uh or too many people on the left of the labor party were willing to accept uh the leave vote is because they wanted to give that to socially conservative constituents rather than uh, engage with them on their ideas about crime and immigration. So what he's saying in effect is like, no, 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 we should protect the European Union, uh, but agree with regressive attitudes on immigration and crime. Like that, that's basically what, that, that's, the, that's the conscious trade-off, um, which I think is the opposite of what people think. They think that support for the European Union is just straightforward social liberalism. Uh, and that we, you know, and, and they think that uncritically about that, that it's just, and that's why we should have supported it. But no, like there's, it's linked by this kind of management of, of public uh, discontent. Yeah, I mean, I really see Keir Starmer as being very classic of that type. Yeah. And I, so was it. So was Ed Miliband. And so was Gordon Brown, the mm. bigoted woman. Remember <laughs> Oh, that's one of my favourites, yeah. As soon as he's in the car, outside the car he's going, he's going, hmm, interesting. Yes, we're listening to your concerns. Listening to your concerns, gets in the car, he's like, oh, who put me with that, that woman? 
Uh, and my favorite, my favorite line in that, I must have said this on the podcast before. Um, well, what was she saying? And he went, everything. <laughs> <laughs> all the bits, all the well, bits. All, you know, you know what, what those scum say, everything. He was just saying everything. Um, so yes, uh, I, I just, it's so honestly, the number of people, it's okay not to, to feel okay. I mean, and obviously like it being a slogan about mental health, hmm, let's see how many more mental health clinics the NHS open up after this pandemic. That would be interesting. Uh, I bet there will be rhetoric around that. I bet they'll be saying, you know, a lot. Yeah, there's, there's definitely like extra money is going into mental health stuff yeah. in the budget for sure. But it, but it will be, it'll be interesting to see if, uh, if all that, that cloud of it's okay, you know, it's really hard and all this kind of stuff, mental health problems. Like, there's a lot of talking that up. We'll see because it's, it's one of these areas in the NHS which is starved of funds, basically. Of course, like, and you know obviously mental health is an important thing because people have it now do you know what i mean people have like mental health difficulties people are like in a really difficult situation um so mental mental health is an important thing now but i think it's also important to remember how mental health is actually so incredibly linked to material conditions and material circumstances and the development of capitalism particularly neoliberalism after the cold war i know you're not a fan of adam curtis david i know you're not a fan i've been watching a better one of those it's, honestly i think it's his best work very fashionable right now to really hate on adam curtis but yeah. it's fantastic like i think it's i don't you know i mean i'm not like drinking it all in like a big hot drink i think that you know there are a couple of there i mean there's six episodes they're like an hour and 20 minutes each um i think maybe three and the third episode and the last episode are my favorites um i i tend to it's, it, it's a lot more like art than politics but i quite I, I like it it's a really enjoyable watch and it's on bbc and it's taking quite a radical political stance but a lot of this you know in the last episode this he's talking about the um the neuroses that has come with like the development of capitalism. I mean, I guess that's a theme of his whole, the whole series is, you know, the, the kind of stereotype of the creation of the suburbs. And, um, you know, obviously the suburbs were, you know, invented, they are, an, uh, they are, they are an invention and um, to stimulate growth and consumer demand in the aftermath of the second world war. So you have the growth of these suburbs, people are moving out of um, cities, people are moving out of more crowded accommodation into suburbs, but then there's a lifestyle that goes with the suburbs, very typical of like the American era of the 1950s, which spawned some incredible literature like Revolutionary Road and, you know, the 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 idea that like the american dream was was dead and all of our hopes and dreams of becoming something you know are trapped now in these suburban lives and the cartoon version of that like the picture it paints is of the the man going out to work and the woman being at home being a housewife and being on valium and you have this you know which is a very classic stereotype again literature and film is is replicated over and over again um but you know the the series then charts I, like the almost like the, the 
the psychology and the psychological aspects of these material changes. So how individualism has basically made everyone mad. Like it's basically, mm -hmm. you know, made us like quite neurotic people. Um, and there's this, I mean, what the implications are for politics in that sense. So there are times when I've seen pictures, particularly, you know, of the, um, like during the Red Clyde side or, you know, mass rallies of like communists in the 1930s, that sort of thing. Whenever I've looked at that, I've always been like, I just cannot ever imagine that ever happening. Like, I can't imagine it because I have grown up in this world where everyone is very individualized. And Adam Curtis says this great thing where he says, maybe the true radicalism isn't about expressing yourself. Like maybe it's not about, you know, telling your story or making your voice heard. Maybe true radicalism is giving up a part of yourself to something much greater. Mm -hmm. like, that, is, that is actually part of my worldview is that you, act, you do have to sacrifice a part of the self, a part of the ego mm -hmm. in order to, to, you know, have a common purpose or like a point of common unity. Um, you know, that's how mass communist organizations work. So I do very much recommend the Adam Curtis documentary. Um, I also think I do, I do worry about like the ease in which with mental health people are put on like antidepressants. I mean, like the rates of prescriptions of antidepressants in Europe alone is insane, completely. And the question is, is like, are we more depressed now than we were 50 years ago or 100 years ago or was everyone always depressed and they just hid it because I think the latter is what like the mainstream kind of like what a lot of charities what some politicians etc would want us to think is that you see people have always been really sad or neurotic or anxious and actually we've just got much better at talking about it and that's what's causing the numbers to increase. Like people are more comfortable in saying I'm depressed or I'm unwell on, or going to the doctors to seek help about it. Mm -hmm. And that, that's causing the, the increase in these rates of like prescriptions and health, mental health referrals, that sort of thing. Whereas I kind of am veering to the other side is that something is happening to us as humans. We're becoming more individualized, more alienated. Our relations are, you know, barely like social relations in the way that, that they would have been 100 years ago. And like the, that process of alienation is causing us like more and more psychic damage. It's taking its toll on, on who we are and how we see the world, how we interact with it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I totally agree with that because that, that's why I hate this sort of like, there's something I really resent. Obviously, I know that it's a good thing if people uh, feel free to discuss their mental health problems and stuff. I just mean, all right, you keep telling us that everyone needs to talk about how mentally unwell they are, right? Um, you don't think it's your responsibility to do anything about it. You don't even think you're responsible. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean and, and there's a sense in which, of course, the fucking justice minister in Scotland is not, not responsible. responsible. But you know what I mean? Like, There's not this idea where people, it's not seen as a public policies it's seen as like we're we're breaking into a new kind of like you know it, it's the fucking it's the uh it's the age of aquarius or something Every, it's great everyone's being free and open about how mentally unwell they are uh and this is like a this is progress uh 
it's not. <laughs> like it's, it's, it is in much the same way as at the end of the 70s and 80s, lots of people who had worked uh, on the Clyde or in various other industries started dying from the effects of working with asbestos for decades or, or whatever. Um, at that point, people were like, oh, like the way that we were expected to integrate into the economy, the way that we were expected to live our lives was killing us. And there was dishonesty about it. Obviously there was, you know, at the, at the top of these industries. That That's like, this is like, a, <laughs> mental health is like a, uh, an industrial accident uh, you know, it's, it's like it's 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 a byproduct of capitalist development, uh, and I don't want to hear all the time that that's okay. That you know what I mean. That that needs to be socially acceptable. Should it be socially acceptable? Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's okay. It's okay to have asbestos poisoning. Just so you know. Just so you don't feel stigmatized. <laughs> it's okay. Um, no, it's not. Uh, it's not really. Um, so no, I agree with that. I don't. I don't believe. Um, uh, in kind of a trans-historical view of like a, a permanent humanity. I was reading a, a, a couple of years ago a biography of uh, Martin Luther. <laughs> it's, it's surprising that. On brand. Yeah, that claims to be a psychoanalytical hist uh, like biography of him, that it would claim to be addressing his historical trajectory by psychoanalysis. And uh, I did sort of think, even though, you know, you can use psychoanalysis, not just to deal with mental health, but civilizational development and so on. I did think to myself, like, interpreting people's dreams and stuff is hard enough when their dream was last night and you have quite close context, context their social context. Like, uh, if you go 500 years ago and try and examine the psychology of a man 500 years ago, he he was totally different to the way people are today. There wasn't mental health issues of the of the same kind. You know, there would have been some that were a byproduct of his period in the development of civilization. But it's totally unrelatable to our present uh, condition. Well, this is a, like one. This is one of Marx's core ideas, isn't it? Of course, yeah, yeah. Like the the man. God, don't cancel me for saying man. But like man shapes the earth in his image so like the this the species being or whatever like shape the earth into or having control over nature and that that in turn then changes our nature yeah and yeah. that you it's a dialectical relationship dialectics listeners can't see this but i'm doing a little dialectic hand right now which means that we are discussing things dialectically and sophisticated <laughs> yeah. Um, no, absolutely, of course. Yeah, I mean, we I mean, are... what I find completely—I mean, I want to say maddening about the kind of mental health discussion—is um, that it fascinates me the way that capitalism, right, in this modern era, like particularly like over the last like, I mean, our generation, right? That's defined by all the crises, the dot-com bubble, like 9-11 and financial crash, coronavirus, crisis, 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 right? So that our generation in particular, um, you know, we're now in workplaces where we're encouraged to do mindfulness. The HR mm. departments will come and they'll help you do some mindfulness. 
and you can like buy mindfulness apps and programs and it's kind of like the explosion in the self-help industry which has always been a massive industry generated out of particularly California which is also where a lot of the tech that's coming from that's also HR that's managing our lives like I'm just fascinated by how like that relationship of this new technological change that is driving our lives through these periods of crisis is causing us to be mentally unhealthy let's say but don't worry because capitalism has a solution for you and you can buy it for a nice price like mm -hmm. capitalism's ability to like reproduce itself and like those same like patterns and like to create new goods and new desires for those that those goods can satisfy i mean it's really quite phenomenal yeah yeah and i mean you can if you if you look at it in operation you can't help if you sort of be in be in awe of it to a certain extent um but you know the fact that and i, I suspect i've only watched the first half of those Curtis documentaries but just the capacity of capitalism to absorb every challenge to it in the last 50 years and turn it to its own advantage. I mean, you know? it's incredible. Yeah. Like, yeah. in a sort of, like, incredible in the same way that, like, a black hole is incredible. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, One, just quickly, another landmark documentary tonight airing is uh, this, this film about Charles Kennedy. Yeah, well, I think this is especially on the back of, like, what we've been talking about um about you know politicians say it's okay not to be okay and um, there's this documentary which i'd really like to see about charles kennedy and um, who's a i mean a political figure i have quite a lot i have a lot of compassion for do you know what i mean like I, politics is a it's a nippy world um, and he was an alcoholic and um that must have been very frightening and very difficult um, but the article today, there's an article in the Scotsman saying that um, Charles Kennedy faced abuse and denigration of the worst kind before he died. Um, he had a hemorrhage as a result of his of his years as alcoholism. Um, yeah, I have a lot of compassion for for Charles Kennedy, but I do I do see this growing trend. Um, in politics where our elected representatives, MPs, MSPs, um, are, are also of, like victims of the electorate themselves. Mm. And in the, the article in the, the Scotsman, um, it's got a quote from, from Alistair Campbell, right? Mm. Um, you know, commenting on, on these things. And he was a, a friend of Charles Kennedy and Alistair Campbell is saying, you know, maybe if he had been more open about his problem with alcohol, it wouldn't have, you know, given his political opponents uh, so much ammunition and using it against him. I mean, really, I, I don't think that anyone should be under, see that as a core concept that if Charles Kennedy had been more open about his alcoholism, it wouldn't have given people the fuel. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I think that there is like, a, I think that there is, a, there has to be a private life to public mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. I, I really dislike this modern 
style of politics where politicians have a tragic backstory that like makes them who they are, like have worked, you know, the hardest jobs and have really like struggled through personal difficulties in order to triumph and, you know, be your political leader. Like, I'm not interested in that. Like, I think that that's a, it's a form of emotional manipulation, which mm -hmm. you, know, you want to criticize a person and they say, well, don't you understand how hard life's been for me? It's like, you are an elected representative. Like you're elected to represent these people. Like, I mean, if, Alistair Campbell is talking about like the victimization of politicians, then we need other words for the people who are the vic actual victims of Alistair Campbell, for example. Like we need words for people who are victims of actual government policy, both at home and abroad, that have had life-changing consequences for people mm -hmm. in the most negative of ways. Yeah. So I feel like this story about Charles Kennedy, like it kind of, I feel really pulled into different directions. I genuinely am ambivalent about it. Like I can see like this, it's really good that there's this documentary talking about like how difficult um, politics had become for him. But at the same time, I'm also kind of, I don't know, I feel unsettled by the idea that the MPs are, are victims of constituents or victims of politics and um, rather than being um tribunes as they should be yeah no I, I, but I, yeah this is also partly i think a consequence of for a lot of politicians their politics doesn't mean anything anymore like it's a job and they, they have this almost attitude of like you know i shouldn't i shouldn't have to just come into my job and and listen to this kind of abuse and all this kind of stuff it's like you start missing the point here um I remember um, shortly before he died uh, that appearance uh, he made on Question Time where he was visibly drunk, seriously, visibly seriously drunk and uh, rambling and, and all this kind of stuff and thinking like, yeah, I don't know why uh, an editor let him on that, uh, you know, I mean, on national because television. Those programmes are set up as, I mean... A bear pit, yeah. Yeah, but there's also, I mean, there's a beautiful line in um, Andrew Martin's book with, about Monica Lewinsky, and um, where she says, "I came to realize that public humiliation was a blood sport." Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, like, that, that's what that is like. Yeah, if, if it bleeds, it leads, isn't it? But he, I, I mean, the stuff that was going on when he did uh, obviously he started drinking extremely heavily again. Uh, his marriage had collapsed. Uh, his political career was over. His political party was over. Uh, was, he he um, he had been an opponent of the uh, coalition government. Uh, he thought the Lib Dems should never have joined it. Um, I'm not I'm not saying that therefore he's sort of like left wing or something. He's just more savvy than the morons who decided to destroy the Lib Dems by taking them to coalition with the Tories. So he, his world was coming to an end, really. And then he said, he said on that Question Time program, I don't know my own country anymore. Like, he was like a broken man on this fucking thing. I don't know this country anymore. Like, his whole uh, his whole world had, had completely collapsed. Uh, but no, I mean, I agree with you. I think, I mean, it links very closely with basically everything we've been talking about on this this podcast. The worst, the worst form I, I ever saw of that kind of, need to have this kind of emotional manipulation was 
when someone persuaded Gordon Brown um, to go on a chat show and talk about and cry and talk about the death of his son. And I remember just thinking, like, watching that thinking, feeling really sorry for him, but also just that I thought everyone in this situation is debased. Everyone in this situation. Like, we are making him cry about his his dead son on live television. It was just fucking... Because at that point... Because his poles were in the toilet and everyone said he, he was unrelatable. Remember, he couldn't smile. Yeah. Like, he would always sort of go, you know, and, uh, and pull his bizarre smile. I don't, like, get this this thing about, like, being able to relate to people through pain. I just don't oh, get it. Yeah. Like, I don't... I mean, we live in a world where we have a media industry that thrives on women's pain. Like... I mean, the whole Me Too movement like propped up <laughs> the media in, in the States, particularly the liberal media for a long mm-hmm. time. Like Weinstein, like particularly again, like, you know, it, women's pain became like um, basically a marketing device. Um, mm-hmm. And I just don't see this, like I don't see the benefit in relating to other people through pain. Like, I think you can have empathy and you can have compassion other people and also like you don't have to be an arsehole on social media but I also think that you know if you're going to go into public life then there has to be a a bit that's also private where you don't have to talk about your divorce or your addiction um or do I mean the the shite job that you had when you were 20. Mm. Everyone does that now even Keir Starmer says that is you know, he says his dad was like a factory labourer or something, right? Because he probably worked in a factory for about two years. <laughs> it's also led to this thing. I don't know if you've noticed this, where everyone says that they were the first in their family to go to university. Yeah. Big fucking whoop. Stop doing that. That doesn't mean that you are a fucking slave at some point. You know what I mean? There's not, you know, that doesn't mean that you're fucking salt of the earth. Um, yeah. Is that, I mean, is that us? I think so. Yeah, I think that's about an hour we've been talking. So anyway, um, I don't know. That feels like a really like dark note to end on. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll be back in two weeks time. Hopefully we'll have a guest on the show in two weeks time. I don't want to announce it yet, just in case um, they're not able to make it. Um, but hopefully we'll have a guest on for the next episode of Contercast. Please um, like, share and subscribe. Um, tell your pals, etc. Tweet at us if you've got any feedback. Um, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Goodbye. Bye.